Welcome to The Middle, an exploration into the organisational layer that has the biggest impact on overall performance. In this podcast series, Stephen Wilson from Birmingham City University discusses the issues with executives from both the private and public sectors. For alerts of the next programme, don't forget to click the follow button. My guest today is Justin King. I interviewed him just after he'd stepped down as Chief Executive of Sainsbury's, the number two grocery chain in the UK. I wanted to explore with him the underlying issues of the turnaround of this long-standing organisation. When I arrived in Sainsbury's in 2004, the business had lost market share around 14 years in a row. So this was a situation of a long-term decline of a once highly esteemed business. Sainsbury's is a business that had you know, truly once been uh, great. Uh, if one went to the mid-1980s, I think by common consent probably worldwide, it would have been considered one of, if not the, the leading grocery business in the world. But the incumbent executive team had decided that the market was mature and that supermarket provision was stable and therefore growth was to be sought elsewhere. It concluded that around 30,000 square feet were as big as supermarkets were going to get, that it had most of the locations for those supermarkets in the UK, so that there wasn't a big chase for space at around that time, and that therefore they needed to diversify. It's easy to see how board discussions might have gone along the lines of why destabilise and threaten our successful UK business model, Why don't we export it and make profits elsewhere? Interestingly, Tesco's tried similar moves from a similar rationale sometime later. And so they moved into non-food. With the home-baked business, they moved international. So did all those classic things. Of course, that diverted capital and it diverted management attention. And of course, they were wrong in that view. Actually, the most dynamic era of change in the supermarket industry was yet to come. So while Sainsbury's were aiming off, Tesco reinvented what the supermarket was over a period of 10 years. And the lines between Sainsbury's and Tesco uh, being number one was crossed around 1995, a very long time ago. Knowing this beforehand, but being unaware of the root causes of the decline, Justin must have given due consideration to what his first moves should be, knowing that everybody would be watching and interpreting every single step he took. For my first working day at Sainsbury's, I didn't turn up at what Sainsbury's then called head office. I turned up in a shop, the number one store in the company. This must have somewhat bewildered the executive team, waiting anxiously for the arrival of their new boss, wondering what edicts and priorities were going to prevail. But there was a clear message that Justin had in mind. Many of the store managers subsequently told me that that alone made them feel stronger than they'd felt for a long time in the organisation. You can only imagine the feelings that must have been coursing through that poor site manager's minds as the new chief executive arrived unannounced and worrying all the time as to whether his bosses would see his comments as subterfuge. What I found were a lot of really good people who knew how to do their jobs really well, 
but there'd been a failure of leadership. A previously developed turnaround plan was in the process of being implemented. But there were unintended consequences in the desire to maintain profits to keep share prices high. Prices were less sharp. Availability was poor because the system changes were being done in a, a, a rapid way, which meant that the, the service levels could not be maintained. The business was overly tight on cost because the top line stopped growing as a result of those changes. With the failings of the centralised rollout of these initiatives being all too clear, Justin must have wondered whether the needs of the customer were being adequately addressed. The only place that we served customers was in shops. The only people that were serving customers were the people in those shops. And the organisation was doing a lamentable job of equipping those people to serve those customers. And we needed to change the centre of gravity in the business so that we understood that. And empowering the operating side of the business was a key part of the change that we made. Here, Justin appears to be saying that giving people local discretionary authority is the most appropriate structure when there's a diverse range of tastes and of degrees of affordability and that individual decisions pose relatively minor risks to the organisation at large. And so we had to empower the store managers, which you know, I did by regular contact. We had to empower our colleagues in the stores. We launched a suggestion scheme called uh, Tell Justin. Those things are some, sometimes iconic, just the very fact you're doing it, and sometimes actually real and practical. They were great ideas, and I'd always find out stuff. Delving in and engaging with this level of detail is a classic approach for new chief executives. However, it extracts a heavy toll on time. Regional offices are a classic way of addressing this level of detail in organisations with several hundred branches. However, in the previous regime, they'd been used as an instrument of central control. So these two became a focus of Justin's attention. We set about changing the name of our offices. They were all called head office or regional office. They were all changed to be called store support centres. They're a place where we support the stores. But we didn't just change the plaque over the door. We said, when you achieve these things in serving stores, you then earn the right to be called a store support centre. So Justin drove a new behaviour through the introduction of relevant performance metrics. So, for example, we set targets about how quickly and how frequently phones were answered when a store called, how soon the answer to the store question was provided, those kind of things. And so our depots and our regional offices and our central office in Holborn all earned the right, if you like, to be called a store support centre. So Justin changed the degree to which the organisation was customer-led. But was the root cause the turnaround, changing the focus for being more upmarket or downmarket? You know, when we started the turnaround of Sainsbury's, the question I was most often asked, are you going to shrink to greatness into the top corner of the market, or are you going to go down into the more price-led uh, part of the market which where there's a lot of money but you're perhaps ill-equipped to compete. And I said, neither. We're going to sit firmly in the middle because that's where we are. But make sure that for any shopping, they don't have to go anywhere else. 
But targeting the biggest part of the market means understanding and serving the most diverse range of needs, degrees of affluence, and in particular their attitude towards grocery shopping. In the simplest terms, let's start with the positive. For many, buying fresh food is a thoroughly enjoyable process. I guess after property programmes food pro and reality programmes, food programmes are the most popular ones on TV, so that tells us something about our relationship with food, or at least our aspiration of our relationship with food. For such customers, the store unlocks value through the prospect of satisfaction, praise and recognition by friends and family, the pride of choosing good quality produce, perhaps bagging a bargain. However, this is in complete contrast to the orientation and disposition of other types of customers. For some, it's always been and probably still remains a utility. I have to do it, um, but not something I want to invest any time and energy. And of course, for those, um, online might be the solution. So in a customer-led organisation, one of the key challenges for store managers is to configure their site to serve the needs of the different types of customers in their relative proportion of importance. And this is only made more difficult by the fact that customers are often unclear about what their underlying needs are. There's a kind of fiction that retail businesses are led by customers. Well, of course, you have to listen to your customers you have to understand them. You have to know what's on their minds. But you should be doing a good bit of leading them to arriving at the place that they're going to before they actually know. You know, when the, the famous story of, you know, was it Marks and Spencers or Sainsbury's that bought the avocado to the UK? Well, I'm pretty sure there wasn't any research kicking around in the early 1960s saying hundreds of thousands of people wanted to eat an avocado. What customers are often lucid about is wanting lower prices. And certainly for some customers, this is the most important priority. But unfortunately, the grocery industry can overemphasize this for those customers for whom value for money is the most important criteria. What's happening at the moment with the consumer is described as being all about price. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. One of the fastest growing uh, channels has been convenience. And convenience is a premium price channel. For shoppers in the convenience channel, the value derives from minimizing the time it takes to collect a small number of items. But regardless of channel, returning Sainsbury's to profitability involved applying leverage to customers through time saving and comfort compared to their previous high street alternatives. My early shopping experiences with my mother were being dragged up and down the high street, and she would indeed go to the baker, the fishmonger and the butcher on the high street. In many locations, changing customer priorities had obsoleted the small retailer business model. However, the availability of large central sites with adequate parking was a source of leverage that Tesco had denied Sainsbury's during its decline. I think it's clear from the announcements that Tesco have made that they were acquiring sites, which really only made sense to prevent somebody else opening. Part of the fight back in Sainsbury's, uh, sort of 2007 through uh, 10, was in starting to take, if you like, Sainsbury's fair share of those available sites. But returning Sainsbury's to profitability not only requires retaining some customer value, but also to increase the value that is predominantly unlocked by employees. So the idea of making Sainsbury's great again really came from listening to our customers and our colleagues. That's what we called employees in Sainsbury's. And the constant mantra was, was I used to be proud to work here. I loved working here. I'd tell my friends that I was here and I would envisage the rest of my career here. And now I hope no one asks me where I work because I don't want 
to admit it. So the Making Sainsbury's Great uh, idea was all about we're going to take the business back to that feeling. The second area for concern of leverage is, of course, suppliers of the proprietary branded goods wanting to maintain their own profit margins. The, the rise of the internet means that there is the potential for manufacturers to have a direct relationship with uh, consumers. During the era of the turnaround and in defence against this threat, the supermarkets all invested heavily in the development and the credibility of their own brands, the generics. Having explored the topics within the business model that Justin addressed as part of his turnaround, let's now turn our attention to the leadership aspect, which is part of the organisation design. I'd been on my first round a month or so after I joined. I'd had all these meetings, 15 or so meetings, 40 store managers or so at a time, across the whole country, with none of their regional management present, just them. And to this day, I'm absolutely convinced it was deliberate. But as this last group left, sitting at the front was a piece of paper. And I walked over and picked it up. And it was email from the regional manager, who wasn't in the room, of course. And it said, following our conference call today, which had taken place the day before, here's the questions we've agreed we will ask Justin. And I realised that even the people responsible for the regional operations of the business had become part of the problem. It would appear that Justin inherited a command and control environment that had been entrenched over a long period of time, making it difficult to evolve. And while the following sounds like carnage, it would have happened over an extended period of time. Most of the top people changed, the whole of the PLC board pretty much, and the whole of the operating board. Of the top 40 or so people in the business, around half of them changed. Such wholesale changes suggests that Justin felt he needed to overcome long-established allegiances and orthodoxies to establish new ways of working, and this included revised reporting relationships. You know, in the early days, we had logistics and uh, retail were two separate divisions, and I couldn't uh, get to the bottom, really, of why they appeared to be two divisions at war when I thought they should be lining up together to serve customers. And... Um, I decided that one of the things we were going to have to do is put them into the same director, and that's what we did. It almost solved the problem overnight, because once they both thought that they were marching to the same director, they heard the same set of directions from that director, and he didn't quite solve it overnight, but it's amazing the difference uh, that it made. Justin also trod carefully when it came to the temptation to measure everything locally and control them tightly in the interests of overall corporate performance. Sometimes the, you know, humans just are humans and you have to make sure the structure of your organisation reflects that sort of natural tendency to defend your bit of turf, even if actually in truth it means the whole becomes less than some of parts. So you may well ask, what was the impact of putting the customer first and pulling resources and initiatives from the front? Having a major restructure in terms of the organisation and massive changes of the leadership team at the top. 10 million more transactions over 10 years is what uh, Sainsbury's uh, uh, growth was underpinned by. And it was about making sure that for whatever shopping they wanted to do, Sainsbury's was the right destination. In a turnaround situation for a publicly traded company, 
it's crucial that the chief executive keeps the shareholders informed and on board. And it had certainly been quite a bumpy ride during the transition when Justin had taken over. And it's really only by the, the third or the fourth or the fifth profit warning that the um, strategy for the turnaround catches up with events that, if you like, are already in the market. So the dialogue within investor relations during this period takes on particular importance. Shareholders, of course, are not forced to be on for the ride. You know, I have no problem as a director sitting in a, a room with the shareholders saying, well, we've clearly articulated our strategy. This is why it's the strategy of our company and we have the full support of the board and the vast majority of our shareholders support it. So if you wish to continue holding shares, even though you don't share that view, that's entirely a matter for you. Of all the facets that Justin addressed in this turnaround, and amidst all the mixed messages about shareholders only being interested in the short term, Justin is extremely clear about one aspect. Shareholders completely understand that it's in their interest that companies think about customers first. And I think a mistake a lot of businesses make is believing that their shareholders think the opposite. In my experience, their behaviour might sometimes belie this. They completely understand that businesses that neglect their customers inevitably will be forced to neglect their shareholders at some point. So Justin laid the cause of the decline, not at the need to reform the strategy, since that remained largely unchanged. Instead, it was firmly at the feet of the senior management, many of whom were replaced. But given the focus of this series, I wondered how many middle managers had to be replaced. After all, there is a body of thought that accuses the middle of being the underlying cause of organisational underperformance through resistance to change and pursuing their own personal agendas. The leadership team, in very large part, the top 1,000 or so, the store managers and everyone of that level in the business, um, were the same people after I'd been in the business four years uh, as I found when I arrived. So in this case, at least, it would appear that middle management is the engine that drives organisational performance, but that it crucially depends on there being a conducive environment to work within. And the turnaround at Sainsbury's included the changes in top-down to customer-driven initiatives, altered reporting relationships, and the sensitive application and policing of metrics that drove the desired behaviours. As a footnote to this episode, it should be noted that following the turnaround, Sainsbury's had a further nine years of profit growth, and that Justin was awarded the CBE for services to the retail industry. And I'd like to add my personal thanks to Justin for providing such an insightful and candid interview. The Middle was conceived and produced by Stephen Wilson. For notifications of future episodes, just click the follow button. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.